we've been doing a series called Post Lockdown Christians. And because, yes, tomorrow is Freedom Day, the end of lockdown, this is going to be our last part of this series. And we've been going through quite a lot. So the first part of our series was um, remembering God and remembering his faithfulness throughout the whole lockdown season, the importance of that. We also talked about the Beatitudes, which um, was all about our character and Jesus painting a new way of living for those who call him Lord and for those who follow him. Um, and thirdly, um, Joelle talked about creating space for God. How can we intentionally um, create space in our day-to-day lives so that we are spiritually formed by Jesus? And last week, I talked to us about the importance of fasting and how it's just a really great practice um, in order to just really grow in our intimacy with Jesus. So before I dive into my talk for today, I want to ask you a quick question, and it's this. Who do you live for? So just take a second to think about that. Who do you live for? And secondly, how do you live for them? So just 10 seconds thinking about that. Be honest with yourself. No one else has been in your mind. (laughs) Who do you live for, and how do you live for them? Amazing. For some of us, instantly, you might think, I live for my parents, um, perhaps my kids, if you have kids, my boss, my friends, my colleagues, and maybe even my church, this church in particular. And I once heard a story of this girl um, who went, so essentially her parents and her dad wanted her to be a doctor so badly. So her dad um, gave her like extra training, literally got her a private tutor, got her into private school and basically so encouraged his daughter to go to be, to become a doctor. And she got into um, med school and after she finished five treacherous years of med school, shout out to my doctors out there, I'm praying for you guys. But after she she finished five treacherous years of med school, it came to her day of graduation and she um, had her cap, her graduation cap, her gown, and she had some flowers and she had a diploma in the other hand. And she was taking pictures and she took pictures with her family and after the pictures had finished, you just saw like the smile faded from her face and she took off her cap and she took off her gown and she handed her diploma over to her father and she said father I did this for you now I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do and she said I'm going to become a lawyer and I'm going to do a law conversion course and obviously that's just a short story to show how we can actively live for other people And I read a report earlier this week that compared um, South Asian culture and East Asian culture with Western culture. And it argued that South Asian culture and East Asian culture is more holistic and it is more about community. There's a focus on corporate unity and corporate flourishing. So in a sense, there's an emphasis on the family network and you are found and you come alive and you find your place in this society, in your family. You find who you are in your family. Whilst in Western culture, especially due to our education system and cultural literature and um, social media, there's an emphasis on personal freedom and flourishing. 
Rather than finding yourself by being rooted in a family and community, you find yourself by doing your own thing. And this is otherwise known as the rise of the independent spirit. I find myself if I do my own thing. I flourish not with my family, not with, with my community, but I flourish independently, living for yourself and for your own dreams. And in John chapter 16, a chapter in the Bible, we find a dilemma where a group of people um, who are following Jesus are trying to work out whether Jesus is actually worth living for. And it basically starts off like this. And let me just um, paint um, the backdrop. So Jesus saw a big crowd following him because he had a reputation of healing the sick. And scripture says that the crowd was roughly 5,000 people, but this was excluding, um, this was just men. So it counted 5,000 men. So you can just imagine, it didn't count the ladies and it didn't count the children. So it could have been anything like 15,000 people. And so this big crowd is in front of Jesus. And Jesus asks Philip, a disciple of his, where shall we buy bread to feed all these people? And Philip was like, Jesus, this will take more than a half a, a, half a year of wages in order to feed this crowd. And Andrew was like, um, he thought about it and was like, um, Jesus, well, actually, there is this kid who has five loaves and who has five loaves of bread and who has two fishes. Maybe you can do something with that. And I can just imagine the other disciples just looking at Andrew thinking, are you crazy? What can five loaves of, uh, of bread and two, um, two fishes do to feed a crowd of 5,000 plus? But Jesus took the loaves and fishes, scripture says, and he gave thanks to God the Father and distributed the bread and fish. So essentially, every time he broke the bread, every time he broke the fish, it continued to multiply until it fed those thousands of people. And afterwards, 12 baskets of full remained after everyone, all those thousands of people have eaten their fill. And then the following day, so you can just imagine this crowd, they think, oh, wow, Jesus is dope. Jesus is feeding us for free. And then this following, the following day, the crowd was in search for Jesus again. And Jesus says to them these words. We can find it in John 6, verse 26. I'll read from the NRV version. It says, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are only looking for me, not because you saw this. Yes, yeah, sorry, very truly, I tell you, you are only looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I'll read that again. You are only looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus questions the crowd's intentions on why they are actually looking for him. He's basically saying to them, you are only following me because of what I can do for you. You want my hand, but you don't want me. And Jesus did not want a relationship with them based on what he can give them, but what he might be to them. So they are trying to use Jesus in other words. And I just want you to think for a second, have you ever been used? Has anyone ever been used? And I can tell you a, 
an embarrassing story of mine, where I was used in secondary school. So there was this really cool girl in, in um, my secondary school, and I didn't like her like that. I just thought she was cool people. I'm an extrovert. I like friends. So, <laughs> so all of a sudden, this girl started being so intentional with me, and she, she, um, she just wanted to befriend me. And I don't know what happened, but she just wanted to be my friend. Um, and we used to hang out. We used to, um, you know, go to the canteen together, sometimes play basketball and stuff like that. Um, and she'd wait for me after my um, classes and stuff. And we just became, like, within three months, we just became really, really good friends. Until another close friend of mine told me that this girl is only, is, has only gotten close to you because she wants to date your best friend. Honestly. And I was like, what? You're joking? And I was like, no, 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 you're lying. You're lying, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. Literally, it's a matter. <laughs> and I was like, you're lying. And then my good, my good friend told me that, no, it's true. And this was her plan. And she actually told me what that other girl told my good friend, not knowing that she, she, you know, they're better friends with me. But, <laughs> but she told um, my good friend what her plan was and essentially how she was going to befriend me, essentially um, strategically position herself. So any time, any time um, I'm with my best friend, she was automatically brought into the loop. She knew what she was doing, that's the thing. She knew what she was doing. But I've forgiven her, glory to God, because I'm a Christian. But um, I, I confronted her and I was like, you used me, you used me. You didn't want to be my friend. You just wanted to date my best friend. How could you? I let you into my world and you crushed it. Anyway, a bit dramatic, but yeah. <laughs> And she was like, yes, I'm so sorry, da, da, da. Um, would you forgive me? I was like, never, but I have. But at the time, I was like, never. And because, you know, my best friend, he, he's loyal, you know, bros before sisters, hallelujah. <laughs> because, <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. Yep, yep, hallelujah. <laughs> Anywho, let me behave myself. Okay, but because, because my friend, because my friend, my best friend was loyal to me, to be fair, we're not friends anymore, but because he was loyal to me, he was, he, he said, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to talk to this girl, Wale, let's go, let's just, let's not talk to her, let's just um, have nothing to do with her and stuff. But that girl used me. And as funny as that story is, I kind of feel like this is what the situation was seen here in John 6, where this crowd wanted to use Jesus. They didn't want a relationship with Jesus. They only wanted him to, they only wanted Jesus to set him up, to set them up. And even with us in England in the 21st century, and even though there's thousands of years separating us from those Jews, we have a similar, and we can sometimes have a similar approach as that crowd, um, as with Jesus as well. So it's literally thousands of years have separated us, but we still have sometimes that same approach that crowd had with Jesus as our personal, personal relationship with God. Sometimes we we'll only come to God for what we can get from him. 
Perhaps we say, God, I need a new job or I need, you know, to elevate in my career. I need my career to take off. I need to blow. I need a house. I need good grades. I need a relationship and so on. And all of these things are good, but if we're not careful, it can be the driving force in which we come to God. And ultimately, it becomes the very thing that you live for. And what does Jesus have to say about this? Let's turn to verse 27, John 6, verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You know, for some reason, the crowd followed Jesus because they believed that bread was the very thing that they needed to survive. So they put a lot of effort into trying to find a man that could give them bread on demand. You know, when they lost Jesus, there's, a, there's a, um, an account um, in the earlier parts of this, in this chapter. When they had lost Jesus, they literally, imagine thousands of them, they took a boat to Capernaum to find Jesus. So they traveled at least six miles with, with a great number, with thousands of people. And you might think it is a lot of effort to do all of this for bread. If someone told me I had to travel from Battersea to Woolwich on an Uber boat, and on top of that, to take my whole family with me, my aunts, my, my parents, my sisters, my niece and nephews, my aunts, my uncles, those aunts and uncles that aren't blood, but you still call them aunts and uncles, my cousins and those cousins that aren't blood, but you still call them cousins, my grandparents, my family friends, and so on, do all of this trip, carry all of them just for a loaf of hovis, I would be like, you're kidding. But can you blame the Jews? You know, in that day, bread was a staple item. It was an integral part of most of their meals. They basically lived on bread. And here you have Jesus who is casually multiplying bread. Most of them, when it came to their food budget, it went, the majority of it went on bread. So, of course, they got excited. Jesus can save them money. And as I was reading and as I was preparing this earlier this week, I was trying to understand um, the Jews' excitement when they saw Jesus multiplying bread and what, what weight it carries culturally. And I thought it's quite similar to Nigerians with rice. And I know I could probably say that for many countries, but I'm Nigerian, so I'll use that as an example. So for Nigerians, shout out to all of you guys on there, <laughs> out there. For Nigerians, if rice suddenly disappeared, then there will be a big issue for many of us. Because some of us, emphasis on us, we eat rice every day and sometimes multiple times a day. You know, you've got rice and stew, you've got jollof rice, you've got fried rice, you have rice and beans, you have rice and ayamashe, you have rice and agusi, and essentially rice can be eaten with most things. <laughs> and Nigerians here in England, perhaps, you know, we feel like rice is relatively cheap. But if someone said, I can give you a life supply of rice, let's be honest, that will save you quite a bit of money over a lifetime. And that's what this crowd saw with Jesus when it came to bread. 
And on top of that, bread had a historical and cultural significance. In the book of Exodus, um, while the um, children, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, scripture says that um, they had no food, so bread basically rained down from the heavens to sustain them while they were in the wilderness. So, so this was the context of the crowd that Jesus was addressing. They fundamentally believed that they could not survive without bread. They truly believed that. So I just want to ask you quickly, what is your bread? Or if you're Nigerian, what is your rice? What is that thing that you feel like I cannot fundamentally and deeply live without? Or what is that thing that you live for? Like I mentioned before, perhaps it's a certain financial status. Perhaps it's to take off, you live to, you, you live to blow and to take off in your career. Perhaps you live to have a growing business, to have good grades, to get the latest phone or tech gear, a house, a relationship, clout, or in other words, popularity. You know, perhaps you live and you desire for Instagram likes, to have the coolest clothes, to have the most ripped body, and perhaps you live to just have a fun summer and a buzzing social, um, social calendar. And often, because we feel like we can't survive with these things, we work hard and at any cost we try to attain it. For example, we, date and we download the latest dating apps and we work hard on our profiles so that someone will find us impressive enough to love. We spend relentless hours in the gym calculating our calories and measuring our gains. We network like crazy, hoping at any moment we might meet someone that will, that, that will accelerate your brand or your business. And all of these things are not bad, like bread is not bad. But I believe, and honestly, I do believe in intentionality. I, I believe it's a good thing, but often it's disproportionate. We often put more effort in things that Jesus would say that spoils. Like he says, do not put work in food that spoils. In other words, we often put effort in things that Jesus says will fade away. And that's why when Jesus saw the Jews' relentless pursuit for bread, he says, do not put to work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life. He's basically saying what you're chiefly pursuing is not worth the majority of your time. It won't fully satisfy you or quench your soul and spiritual hunger. But I can, I can give you bread that endures to eternal life. So after hearing this, of course, they would ask, how can we receive this? And we see this in verse 28. They say, what must we do? And um, what must we do to do the works God requires um, to receive this bread? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, is to believe in the one who has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that they may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what are they doing here? Let me just kind of summarize it. They, they are basically giving Jesus an ultimatum. They're saying that we will believe in you, Jesus, and we will live for you if you give us what we want. Give us a sign. 
And to be honest, there's times, even with myself, we do the same. I have certainly done that. Where, where I say, God, I will follow you. I will serve in church. I will lead worship. I will give to you if you just do this for me. Give me a sign. Do something for me. Ultimately, still believe in the lie that if I have that particular thing, then I will ultimately be happy and fulfilled. But Jesus says a striking statement in verse 35, if we turn to it. He says this. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. In other words, you may think it's that very thing that you've been praying for, that you've been striving for, that you've been hustling for, that will bring you the most happiness and fulfillment. But Jesus simply is saying, it's me. I am your bread. Nigerians, I am your rice. <laughs> but by Jesus saying, I am the bread, he's saying that I am your absolute life. I am everything you need. He's saying, I am the light in the darkness, your entrance into security and your ultimate friend, your guide and protector in life, your hope in death, your certainty in perplexity, your source of strength, your source of productivity and creativity, the forgiver of your sins and your reconciler to God. And that, he, and that is what he is saying. And tell me one thing, one person in this world that promised to do all these things and who is actually able to do it on a consistent level and pull it off. There's no one. I feel like I've met a lot of people. I have a lot of great friends. I've done a lot of cool things. But ultimately, none of them have been able to be my light in the darkness, my entrance into security my consistent friend at all times, my guide and protector in life, my hope in death, my certainty in perplexity, my source of strength and productivity and creativity, and my forgiver of sins that reconciles me back to God. Only Jesus can. And if we read on from verse 35, Jesus continues with these words. He says this, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, but as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. Verse 37, all those that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of, none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son, Jesus, and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the main thing I want to draw from this extract we just read is verse 38. At the start, I ask, who do you live for? And Jesus right here is saying that he lives to do his father's will. And Jesus acknowledges that no one can come to him unless the father calls them. It begins with the work of God the Father inside of them. 
And for some of you listening here in person and also online, you might feel like God is calling you. And in verse 39, Jesus promises this. He promises not to lose you. He promises not to let you down and to carry you all the way through this life and beyond into eternal life with your heavenly father. And Jesus goes on after this to say a few radical statements like this. He says, whoever eats my, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I have to admit, for our context, and even in theirs, this sounds disgusting. This sounds very, very weird. But I should highlight that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's basically saying, he's using this to talk about that believing in his death on the cross will be enough to forgive you of the sins that you have and to make you at peace with God. So really, eating and drinking in this context simply means to believe. And after hearing all of this, after hearing that um, the Jews, after hearing that I am the bread of life, eat my flesh and drink my blood, many people from the crowd are like, hold up, this guy Jesus is crazy. How can we accept what he's saying? It is a bit too much. And as a result, they walk away from him. And the reality is, for some of us, this might be a hard concept to accept. How can a relationship with Jesus and living for him bring me the most fulfillment in my life? And I remember a young lady who I met a few years ago. She said to me, Jesus is great, but let's face it, he can't hold me at night. And she said, I need to find someone that can. He's not enough. And you can just imagine, after the crowd left, from thousands it turned to just a, just a dozen full of people. Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them, are you going to leave me as well? And I love this. This is what Simon Peter responds. In John 6, verse 68, Simon Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'll read that again. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are truly, that you are the Holy One of God. Another translation phrases it like this. Lord, where else shall we go? You have eternity in your hands. We have come to see that everything we ever want and need is in you. And Simon Peter deeply believed this, so he devoted his life to Jesus. For those of us in this room and online who are Christians or maybe thinking about faith, a question that we sometimes have to wrestle with is this, is whether Jesus is enough. With, is following him with our whole heart, especially after the 18 months that we've had in lockdown, is following him with our whole heart, with our whole lives. Perhaps surrendering our dreams, surrendering some of our desires, surrendering some of the things we want to do. Is it worth it? And for me personally, I would argue yes. But it's up to you whether or not you decide to believe 
that he is the bread of life, that he is the one and only person that can fully satisfy you and not just try to find different things that fits and perhaps fills the voids that you believe that Jesus or God has. Christian or non-Christian, do you believe that Jesus is enough? And I just want to end on a story. So I actually shared this um, with my friend a few days ago. Um, but when I was 19 years old, I studied economics in Leicester University. And when I was 19 years old, I went to, and some of you guys know this story, but I went to one of my lectures. And I heard um, some of my course mates were speaking to me and they're like, Wale, have you applied to some of these internship programs and stuff um, in, in these financial institutions? And I was like, oh no, I haven't applied. They're like, Wale, you need to get on it, you need to get on it. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm gonna get on it. I'm gonna apply to um, different spring weeks and also for summer term um, internship and stuff. And I remember right after the lecture, I was so motivated and I said, okay, I'm gonna um, look up different um, financial firms and I'm gonna start applying. Um, I remember EY was on my list and um, PwC was on my list. So I remember thinking, okay, um, and Deloitte. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply for these institutions, shout out to those institutions. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, sorry, um, sh um, to those firms. But I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to apply to these firms. So I literally sprinted to, to the library and halfway, halfway um, when I, basically when I got to, I was halfway off from the library, um, I just heard the Lord clearly speak to me and he said this to me. He said, Wale, what you are about to do, I haven't favored you for it. And you can just imagine because I grew up in a context, um, in a Nigerian home that I truly love where I was basically being built up and I was essentially living for good grades and I was living for um, financial success and prosperity. And that's how my life was being um, geared towards. So you can just imagine such a statement like that, how it made me feel, where I heard the Lord clearly say to me that what you are about to do, I have not favored you for it. And then the Lord said to me, he was like, if you go down the path I have for you, you'll be pioneering. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I just held that as a prophetic word in my heart. And I just said, okay, God, I'm not going to apply to these firms. A lot of my friends thought I was crazy and stuff, but I just said, I'm not going to apply um, to these firms. And I was just reminded a few days ago that, you know, one of the things that the Lord um, promise like he said i'll be pioneering and one of the things that obviously that has been pioneered is this church imprint church london and what's so crazy is that because i obeyed that word i am literally leading a church in bank which is a financial square mile um, of london and <laughs> if i didn't listen you know god knows what could have happened but my dreams and what i felt like i was being geared towards was to work in one of the firms just across the road but the lord was faithful to his promise and the reason why i share that with you guys is because we truly have to believe is jesus enough we have to be honest with ourselves am i going to live a life that says jesus is enough and what I'm so privileged is that I've just seen God 
completely surpassed my dreams, completely surpassed my expectations. But it truly came at a point of humility where I said, God, I'm going to sacrifice what I feel like I should live for, for you.